Hi, Beck Girl here today with Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's our fellow COO and co-founder of Beck Girl. And today what we wanted to talk about is how to transition from general day practice to emergency medicine. As both Garrett and I are board-certified emergency critical care specialists, we're often asked, what's the easiest way for me to transition? So Garrett, what are some of your tips? Hey, Justine. And I do think this is a pretty common question. And certainly, you and I are probably biased because we love emergency room medicine. It's, it's exciting. It's rewarding. It's fun. You see different cases all the time and get different experiences. So I think this is a, a fairly common question, even for veterinary students. A lot of them love the drama of the ER and they want to know, how do I become a good emergency room doctor? But for all of these reasons, I had a recent conversation with a colleague wanting to do the same. And I gave them a couple of tips that I'd like to share with our members. These are just my two cents, uh, but ones that I think that would help quite a bit for somebody trying to transition to emergency room medicine from a, a day general practice that can help them do that. And the first tip that I would have for somebody trying to transition to emergency medicine is regardless of what you have done before, remember the old saying, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses. And what I mean by that is don't think of the uncommon zebra type diagnosis. At times, I think we are in emergency medicine fearful that we will miss an answer. But common things happen commonly. And when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. So don't try to overthink every single case that comes in in front of you. Sure, every now and then you're going to find yourself in zebra territory. That's what happens in the craziness of the emergency room. It is just the nature of what we do. But again, Common things are common, and remember that when evaluating and working up a patient. And I should also just say that no matter what you have done before, if you've been in general day practice, you have likely, over the years, established your routine on how you examine a patient. You start with the face, you go to the thorax, then you go to the abdomen, whatever it may be. Don't change your routine once you get into emergency room medicine. Just because the patient with a distended abdomen comes in, it doesn't mean you have to change your style and start examining the abdomen first. Do your normal examination and your normal triage examination, for that matter, the same time every single way, because that will help you remain in, in your zone of comfort and help you work through the cases as you were accustomed to doing previously. So don't change your routine. And remember, the things that you had seen commonly in general practice, those common things will remain consistent as you get to emergency room medicine. Great point. One of the interesting mistakes I see people making is, especially if they're getting like after hours referral cases from day practices, is they instantly look at the radiographs, the blood work, the paperwork, things like that. When in actuality, do exactly what Garrett says, look at the patient first. That dog that comes in on a gurney, you know, don't look at all the radiographs and all the other minutiae. Focus on triaging that patient immediately first. Great point. And the other thing that I've seen people do is they get, especially in a specialty or ER type practice where they have lots of fancy toys, they think that becomes part of their physical examination. And I would argue quite heavily that ultrasound for example, even though that it's an incredibly valuable tool in practice, should not be part of your normal examination. I think in veterinary medicine, certainly we, we've become a little bit more spoiled with technology over the years, but it doesn't replace your eyes, your ears, your stethoscope to examine, to evaluate, to help stabilize that patient. A second point that I would make with somebody trying to transfer from their day life of general practice to the emergency room setting 
is that the type of patient, or I should say even more the type of client that you see may be a little bit different. A lot of the cases that we see in the ER, whether or not we technically think it's an emergency, the client does. They come in, they're scared, they're upset, they're frazzled. Many of the clients that I see in the ER, of course, they're not my general family practice medicine case, and they may never have been to the building that I work in before. They may never have even met me before, but they think it's an emergency, and that sort of highlights and, and even exacerbates their feeling of being scared or upset. So whether it's a, an ear infection at 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and for us, we're saying to ourselves, seriously, an ear infection at 3 o'clock in the morning to them, it's an emergency with an exclamation point. So we have to understand that the client mindset may be a little bit different coming into the ER as compared to what you are used to in general practice. They do expect a little bit more of a rapid evaluation, potentially rapid diagnostics, and even diagnosis and resolution of the issue. Even if the problem started two months ago and they come in at 2 a.m. on a Friday morning, they do have a little bit of a different expectation, and that's something you probably should recognize in, in the ways we interact with not only the pet that they're coming in with, but the clients themselves, because they're not used to the building. They're not used to the environment. They're coming to your practice, your emergency room practice, because they are upset, they are concerned, and they felt that it could not wait until their trusted family veterinarian was available to evaluate, whether it's after the weekend or even the following day. That's how concerned they are. And we have to recognize that when somebody comes into the emergency room. Such a great point, Garrett. You know, we oftentimes get bitter and cynical in the ER saying, why is this owner paying $400 to treat an ear infection? And, you know, I can tell you when things actually happen to your own pet, it makes you so much more empathetic. And I remember, you know, we all see itchy dogs coming in in the middle of the night. And I remember when my own pit bull mix was diagnosed with skin disease and he'd be scratching him all night at 2 a.m., it is super annoying and it wakes you up. And, you know, a lot of these pet owners know that hotspot is going to get so much worse within just a couple of hours. So, again, try not to judge those pet owners. They're obviously, you know, concerned about their pet. And I'd always prefer to have a client or a pet owner who's the best pet advocate. So I would actually see it as a blessing that they're coming in. They're willing to wait. Uh, they realize that, you know, it's going to be more expensive than going to their vet, but they're obviously concerned pet owners. I would completely echo that with Justine and saying, until it happens to you personally, you become that much more empathetic when something in your life comes an emergency, whether it's with a four-legged family member or a, you know, a two-legged family member. When you go to the ER and you're on the other side of the table, you, you really get it. Because I'm sure you know, when I brought my child into the emergency room, I'm sure somebody back there was saying, seriously, at 8 p.m. on a Friday night, this is what you came in for. And I'm saying, absolutely, as somebody or something is whining or crying, I, I'm definitely here because I think it's an emergency. And then you have a little bit more empathy, I should say, with that client that comes in with the ear infection or the hot spot or the lameness because you know they care that much for their pet. And uh, sometimes I do have to take a step back and calm myself down as a clinician and say, you know, this is important to deal with and we're going to get through it. Again, they may have a little bit of a wait, but we're going to take care of them. We're going to get the problem figured out and hopefully resolved with analgesia, with what, an antibiotic, whatever it may be to help them and to help their pet. So something to keep in mind that our clients may be a little bit different and the mindset may be a little bit different than what you're used to in the day practice as compared to the ER. 
that goes into my third point and my third sort of tip or two cents with the emergency practices. These, again, these clients are going to be stressed. They're going to be upset. They may be frazzled. It's a different building. It's a new doctor or somebody they've never seen before. It is our job to make sure that we communicate effectively. And I will also add to that and document appropriately. We have to remember that the ER client is a little bit of a different uh, breed, I would say, uh, than the client that presents to the primary care veterinarian. And it is very important that we communicate effectively and document all discussions in our medical record. When I say communicate effectively, it doesn't mean in theory that we're delivering the appropriate information. I can walk into a room, have the correct diagnosis, talk in medicalese, and give them the proper recommendations, but sometimes they either don't understand or just can't really think clearly at that moment. Let's just say, give you a good example, you have a hit-by-car dog that develops a uroabdomen, so it ruptured its bladder from the trauma. I can go into the examination room, look at the client, tell them their dog has a fractured pelvis, a ruptured bladder, needs a two-step stage emergency surgery. This is how we're gonna stabilize the dog, but they are so upset at that moment because they saw their dog hit by a car that they can't understand. And you may have a physician, for that matter, who should understand every single word that you said across the table. They just can't step back and think clearly at that moment. And that's when it's our job as veterinary team members to recognize body language, to recognize facial expression, to recognize how we're communicating, and even say to that client, do you need a minute? Can I help you? Do you need a tissue? Do you need a cup of water? Is this a good time to pause and stop to make sure you understand the things that I'm saying? Do you need a moment just by yourself or to call family and friends before we move forward? Because I know for me personally, when I'm in a stressful situation and I'm trying to deliver news to a, an emergency room client, usually for me, the more stressed that I get as a clinician, the faster I talk. The faster I talk, the less they understand, and then usually, it's unfortunately counterintuitive, the less they understand, the longer I'm in the examination room trying to circle back to the first part of the conversation because they heard nothing. And so I think in these cases, sometimes slowing down will help things speed up. It will help with communication. It will help your approach to the case. So we have to use all of our skills as clinicians, not only medical skills, but communication and style skills as well to help make sure that our clients are having an experience of effective communication. And if not, then we need to change our style in that moment to help deliver the news the best way that we possibly can. In the same breath, I should say, once that is done, it is very important to make sure that we're documenting all of our conversations in the medical record, whether it's handwritten note or if you have an electronic medical record, writing that down, or I should say typing that in your electronic medical record, just to document the conversation that you had. This is what we discussed. This is what I recommended. The owners elected this or declined this, just so everyone has a clear understanding of what went on, not only then, but in the future. Because again, there are times when clients may say, that's not what I was told, that's not what I remember, and it's gonna be very challenging for you two weeks later with a client that may be upset to recall the specific nature of that conversation. And so the first step is not only to have that effective communication and that effective conversation, but then document that in the medical record 
document your conversation about medical information, document your financial conversation, document your diagnostic results, document all of your conversation. And if this saves you from frustration in your ER life once, you'll thank me for making sure that you document everything that's important in your medical record. Totally agree with you there. And again, I would say that's the biggest difference between general practice and emergency medicine is a totally different style of client communication. Obviously, you need it for both. But when you have that stressed out, frazzled pet owner, they're only hearing a third of what you're saying. And so I believe in the philosophy of chunk and check, give them a small chunk of information, then check in and make sure that they understood it. Another thing that I found really helpful is when I will literally say, you know, I'm going to leave you guys for a couple of minutes or, you know, do you guys need some time to talk? And that way they can talk and process things just in private. And I'll come back and reiterate a couple of points, which I find really helpful. I know for me, when my own personal pit bull was diagnosed with cancer in the emergency room and I heard the words, your dog has cancer, it rocks your world. And, you know, Garrett and I have said that thousands of times over the years you know, with that classic hemangiosarcoma, you know, golden retriever that comes in. And, you know, when it happens to you again and the tables are turned, really makes you empathetic how hard it is to hear from someone who you don't have any client relationship or bond with. So again, be compassionate, make sure you document well and that you communicate well and that you offer all the choices in a clear, concise manner and chunk and check frequently. The last thing I wanted to mention was when it comes to client communication, and I know Garrett has brought this up multiple times, document, 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 <laughs> because you want to make sure that you know when you're transferring this case to the referring vet the next day, pet owners aren't going to hear, you know, they offered surgery, they just offered euthanasia. So you want to always make sure to document those three choices or whatever options you're offering that pet owner. And my last little clue, handouts. Owners, oftentimes, again, they're not hearing it because they're stressed out. I, I don't know about you, Garrett, but I love PetPlace.com. They have great client handouts. A lot of them are written by board-certified specialists. And so for a pet owner to understand what IMHA is or hemangiosarcoma or Evans syndrome, super overwhelming. You know they're going to Google it when they go home. So you might as well give them a really good source. And so I like to print out a handout and say, Here's some information and I'll give you a general guideline. You know, I'll call you in a couple of hours with an update on Fluffy and we can talk some more. Awesome points. And I agree with you, Justine. I would much rather have a client go to a reputable source for information rather than them just search the internet, find the first or second hit that comes up and receive questionable information that may not only be incorrect, but may force them to change or disagree with the things that you're doing or not give the medication. So I completely agree. I would much rather have them petplace.com or something similar that has reputable information. Another good point that I like bringing up, and I think it revolves around the understanding that typically in the ER, as Justine alluded to earlier, things cost more than at a general day practice with a family veterinarian. It's just the inherent nature of what needs to happen to keep a 24-7, 365 facility up and running. Usually the costs are a little bit higher. And one of the biggest questions that, that I think we face when we transition is trying to keep costs low for our clients. It's, it's the mindset. We want to do what's right for their pets, but we don't want to have a large bill. We don't want to upset them. 
We may not think they can afford everything that we're recommending. And what I typically say is, remember, we certainly care about our clients. That's our inherent nature as veterinarians is we have a lot of compassion for our clients and for our pets and their, our patients, of course. But it's not technically your job to watch your client's wallet. And I know it's tempting to judge a book by its cover, but I've had many clients where I would have absolutely bet they would not have been able to afford the care that I thought would have been ideal. But in the end, they were willing to spend whatever it took. And so I, I would say, remember that our job is to be thorough and it's to communicate the appropriate options, but it's to let them make the informed decision. If you think blood work is indicated and the right thing, offer it. If you think chest x-rays or ultrasound are indicated, offer it. If that exceeds their financial limitations, that's absolutely okay. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be giving the appropriate options to the clients. And then if there are financial concerns, we then work with a client to do what is second or third best or whatever we can do to help. But don't ever think that you shouldn't offer the right options. When I go into a room with a client, I will offer them as many options as I think are reasonable. Certainly the dog that came in with one or two episodes of diarrhea may have many more options than the dog that was hit by a car because I'm going to be much more adamant that that dog that was hit by a car or have something similar receive hospitalization or additional diagnostics. The dog with diarrhea, sure, maybe a little bit of metronidazole and sub-Q fluids is what they need. But the dog that's hit by a car, they may need a lot more. But it doesn't mean that I judge a book by its cover, that I assume that client can't afford the x-ray or the hospitalization. I offer all the options. I read their facial expressions. I read their body language. I communicate effectively. And I help them make an informed decision. But you can't have somebody make an informed decision if you don't inform them. If you just assume they can't afford the appropriate tests, that's not helping them make an informed decision. And for all you know, they were the most wealthy person in your town and they would have done everything. They would have done the MRI, but you just never recommended it. They didn't even know it was an option. So don't judge a book by its cover. Help your clients make an informed decision and help them then treat their pets effectively with the financial limitations they may have, but help them be informed owners to take care of their pets. Great point. And also work with the referring vet. You know, my general philosophy is treat each patient the way you would if it was your own dog or your own cat. And if you didn't get a discount to veterinary services, would you do a CBC chem UA culture abdominal rads, chest rads, abdominal ultrasound for every single time your cat vomited? No. And so, you know, really frustrating where if you don't think it's indicated, you still want to offer choices, but, you know, work with those pet owners as best you can or work with the referring vet as best you can too. And like Garrett says, don't judge pet owners. You just never know what's going to happen. I guess I would say I have maybe one or two more final discussion points for somebody trying to transition to the emergency room. And one of them has to do with maybe a different personality or a different style of somebody working back in a day practice and a general family practice as compared to an emergency room. I think, for example, myself, I would probably tell you I'm a pretty type A, high-functioning, running around the ER, making people wonder why I'm running type of person, and that somebody in general or day practice that is more laid back may not feel comfortable or may not, as a result, feel like they're doing everything they can because they're not as strung out or stressed or high motor as somebody else in the ER. But I think that laid back 
is not the same thing as bad medicine or good medicine. I think that laid back is just a different approach. And quite honestly, somebody laid back in the ER, that actually may be quite comforting in the ER if that's your personality. You may be a lot more even keel than I am. I'm a little bit more on the high side and the low side. And quite honestly, laid back is not the worst type of personality to have in the ER when people tend to be a little bit more high and low. The one thing I would differentiate laid back from is not being thorough. So we want to make sure that even if we're laid back or even if we're high functioning and high motor, that doesn't mean that we're not thorough regardless of the situation. So it still means that we have to give the owners the appropriate information, the appropriate diagnostic options, the appropriate examination findings. We still have to be thorough for our ER cases, no matter if we are laid back or more stressed out in the emergency room. So even though if we're laid back, we still have to effectively communicate results and concerns and patient responsibility and patient care and providing our clients with a thorough and reasonable set of diagnostic and therapeutic options. But for the people that feel like they are too laid back to be in the emergency room because they've been in general practice for whatever period of time or that's their personality, you may be a breath of fresh air in the ER with those stressed out emergency room type people in there. So laid back may be quite a welcoming experience and don't take that as a negative trying to fit into the emergency room type world. Yeah, I would agree. I probably have a very similar personality as you, Garrett. <laughs> so we're both pretty intense and, you know, I don't want to say high maintenance, but energetic in the emergency room. And so it's always funny when I have externs who want to shadow with me. I'm like, no way, man. I don't want you to see how stressed out I get. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, what's your last point for uh, making that transition from general practice to emergency? My last tip on transitioning would be to go back to the first point. As we talked about, common things remain common, and that's why I talked about my first point first. And it's to remember that common things happen commonly. And that means we should brush up on our common emergencies. There are lots of great resources out there, textbooks, et cetera, to brush up on common emergencies. And if we think about common emergencies, we're talking about our respiratory emergencies like pneumothorax or our flat-faced, smushy-faced, brachycephalic dogs with airway disease or our asthmatic cats, our gastrointestinal emergencies like our GDV gastroenteritis, pancreatitis, for example, trauma emergencies, urinary obstruction in cats, and of course, something that Justine would hold very true to her heart are toxins, our common toxins that we see. And there are a lot of great CE opportunities. We hope that if you're tuning into our Vecral podcast, you know that Justine and I have lots of great ER-type webinar opportunities for continuing education to help you brush up on your emergency room common things, but at conferences, online, brush up on your emergency medical and emergency procedure issues to help you become more efficient and most importantly, comfortable in your transition. There are great didactic opportunities, cadaver or lab opportunities. I think for you as the transitioning emergency room doctor, don't get overly stressed. Remember that common things remain common and brush up on those common things before going in. And the other opportunity, maybe if you have a local ER in your practice, I know at my emergency room, we actually have shadowing not only students and externs, as Justine was saying, but also veterinarians on occasion come in and just spend a day with us to see our workflow, to see our environments, and at minimum, Even if they go back to day practice, they have a better understanding of what to tell their clients on referral, but it also gets them more comfortable whether they see emergencies in the ER 
or as we all know, emergencies don't just become emergent in the ER. You see in your general primary practice emergencies that walk in as well. That may make you more comfortable working on those cases that come in without an appointment because you've brushed up not only on those common emergencies, but have shadowed the emergency room in your area. I would totally agree with you. You know, look for the horse when you hear those hoofbeats. And again, if I had to say like my top five to 10 emergencies that I see, one, the outpatient vomiting diarrhea patient that has gastroenteritis that you treat typically on an outpatient basis. But I always like to make sure that they've had an appropriate workup with radiographs or at least a minimum database to make sure nothing else is going on. That block cat, and everyone has different sedation protocols. Pick whatever you feel comfortable with, but make sure it works and make sure that you're working with that pet owner as best you can again. I see a lot of people doing a CBC Chem UA culture, you know, abdominal rads on every single block cat. And there's this great study that was published in JVAC. Um, I joke and call, it was a publication I published, uh, oh gosh, probably 10 years ago, TPR of block cats. If their TPR is abnormal, they're hyperkalemic. So you don't need full diagnostic blood work or full workup uh, when really you just start them on fluids, you unblock them, you monitor their electrolytes, and a lot of these patients do really well. I'd say a third common diagnosis is unfortunately neoplasia. And so we end up seeing a lot of end-stage disease or you know dogs or cats that have been not eating for a week or present acutely collapse from hemorrhagic shock from hemoabdomen. The fourth would probably be referrals for acute kidney injury. The fifth would probably be toxicants. And so again, you know, focus on the big things. And my last word of advice would be, don't be hesitant to do certain procedures. Just make sure you're doing them as best you can. You know, not everyone feels comfortable doing a pericardiocentesis, but if that dog is about to go into cardiac tamponade and cardiac arrest, you are the only life choice, you know, in order to do it. And so, again, there's a ton of great learning tools out there, videos, things like that, that that can help you with it. But when in doubt, make sure you try to enhance your learning as best you can with some of these procedural labs or, you know, conferences or videos or CE just so you feel comfortable doing those procedures. I believe every veterinarian out there should feel comfortable doing a thoracocentesis and abdominal centesis. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, you shouldn't be in emergency or you need to learn the procedure. You know, so very, very commonly performed. And uh, before you know it, you'll be, it'll be old hat and you'll feel comfortable doing that. Right, Garrett? Absolutely, I completely agree. And I just came back from a lab and we practice a lot of these procedures and hopefully everyone left feeling a lot more comfortable, but it's opportunities like that and there really are worldwide opportunities for you to become more comfortable with ER style of learning and ER style of procedures, um, but there's great opportunities out there. You just have to take the time and the effort to do that like anything in life. The more you do them, the more comfortable you will be, the more proficient you will be, and quite honestly, the better doctor, the better veterinarian you will be. So hopefully, if you're looking out there for your next ER position, this podcast helped you move forward and become a lot more comfortable with that decision to become a better and great ER veterinarian. And of course, to conclude, we have to give a shout out to the IVEX conference or the Veterinary Emergency Critical Care Society conference, uh, which is usually in September every year, a great way for, you know, experienced emergency vets to rookie um, emergency vets who are thinking about going into it. Great information at all different levels. So they have a lot of hands-on labs too. So when in doubt, 
you know, find CE that will help you feel more comfortable with veterinary emergencies.